Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your host is Michelle Beck. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, thrivers, their friends, and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Michelle Beck. Hello, and welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. I'm Michelle Beck. I am a two-time nine-year survivor of breast cancer, and I'm the patient programs assistant at Breast Friends of Oregon. And when I have time, I write at a blog called I Never Liked Pink. So thanks for joining us today. We are talking about a subject that I don't know a lot about. So for those of you who listen regularly, like, hmm, Michelle's awfully quiet today. And it's not because I'm not interested. It's because I don't know a lot. So I think it's great to have our guest here today. And I'm so excited to share her with you. Uh, her name is Rachel Pension Lind. I apologize, Rachel. I should have asked how to pronounce it. Was that close? <laughs> it's close. It's Pension. It's easier Pension? than it looks. Okay. Pen- I, w- I was going for the French version. <laughs> so she is a senior manager of site operations at Clara Health. And we're going to talk about clinical trials today because I think it's so important. And the whole process of clinical trials can be really challenging and overwhelming if you don't know what is going on. And so that's why Clara Health, Rachel's company was established. It's a health tech company, which eases the the burdens placed on patients and caregivers who are really trying to get in the clinical trial process to learn about them and figure it all out. And so for me, my, my both times my cancer was fairly cut and dry, standard, boom, boom, boom. Wasn't really any need for me to participate in clinical trials. So I'm really, I just think it's great that we're here to share this today. So Rachel, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field? Because it seems really specialized. Yeah, thanks for the intro, Michelle. As you said, I'm the senior manager of site operations at Clara Health. And so what that means is that I work closely with sites that have clinical trials going on at them. And what a site is, is a hospital, a doctor's office, clinics, anywhere that a clinical trial is taking place. So I work closely with them to make sure things are going smoothly at their site uh, with patients and anything on the back end, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And how I got into this field. Uh, when I graduated college, I graduated with a bachelor's in biology and I started, I needed a job. And so I started working in a lab actually here in Portland at OHSU um, that did research on cancer. And it was primarily breast and ovarian cancers. Uh, and that was working in a lab, like doing the bench research is what we call it. So like preclinical Um, you know, not working with patients. And that was interesting, but I realized that it wasn't really what excited me. I wanted to work in kind of more of the patient field. And the Mm -hmm. lab that I worked in, our um, principal investigator, so the person who ran the lab also worked in a lot of clinical trials. And so I sort of started to get involved in some of the ones he was doing and, um, you know, expressed interest in that and started kind of working on those with, uh, within his team. Um, and then moved, uh, within OHSU working on different clinical trials in a different department and then kind of came to Claire health about a year ago. Uh, so that's sort of the, the short story of how I got involved. Got it. So what can you explain actually what a, the, the definition of what a clinical trial is? Yeah. So kind of basic at its core, a clinical trial 
is uh, a medical research involving people. So I mentioned that I worked in a lab and preclinical. Mm-hmm. So that's when it's, it's not involving people. But once we start talking about clinical trials, it's research involving people. Um, and, you know, they, they basically show us what's effective in medicine and healthcare. They uh, have volunteers help researchers look at new ways to prevent, detect, or treat conditions, um, and can also look at ways to, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, of different kinds of trials, but um, they can be ways to just observe how people are doing, not necessarily using medications, but, you know, basically, like I said, at its core, it's, it's medical research involving people. Sure. And I would assume we need them because we're trying to help stop the spread of disease, trying to stop, um, you know, cancers or other things from getting more aggressive. Is that the gist of it, basically? (laughs) Yeah. So that is definitely one of the reasons. And, you know, before a treatment can be approved for use and made accessible to patients, um, the FDA requires that the therapy safety and efficacy is evaluated in clinical trials. So this is a way to do that. Um, And it also can make uh, new treatments available. So even if there's a treatment that's maybe fairly effective for treating something, there might be a lot of side effects. Uh, And so clinical trials can help us find new ways to treat diseases and new ways to use uh, medications that are already approved for one thing for something else. Well, I I really hope they continue doing them on the medication that I'm on because, man, the side effects suck. (laughs) Yeah. And that's yeah, that's exactly Mm -hmm. one reason. It's like, hey, maybe it's it's effective, but the side effects make it so that people don't want to take it. And so sometimes they'll do combination therapies and see if those work better or just finding if there are better ways to do things um, than what we have right now. Got it. Totally makes sense. What are the different phases of trials and how, how are they conducted safely? Because I imagine there are risks. Totally. Um, So trials are run in multiple steps and they're called phases and they build on one another. Uh, And each phase helps to answer different questions. Um, But the safety and efficacy is always being looked at no matter what phase we're in. So a phase one trial is is the first one. Um, And it's basically its main use is to find out if a new treatment is safe for people and also to help hone in on the proper dose Um, So there's less of a focus on efficacy, less of a focus on if it's actually working for the intended purpose, although that's still looked at, but uh, safety is the main purpose. And I should say too, that before we get to a phase one trial, there's lots of uh, research on cells, on animals. It's not Mm -hmm. like we're like, just try this and see if it's safe on people. Like there's- Throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Right. Like there has to be like a good reason to think it's safe in people (laughs) before we go into this. Um, this, this, uh, phase one can also help figure out the best method of giving a drug in some cases. So like IV or by mouth, just depending. Mm -hmm. Um, so phase ones are generally about 50 to 15, excuse me, to 50 patients. So smaller. Um, and they're often called, uh, or they often use something called a dose escalating model. And so what this means is you're kind of placed into cohorts of, X number of patients. So, you know, say if there's 15, it's often five, five, and five. The first five will receive a low dose. Uh, And then once all five of those patients have been in the study and gotten the medication, they'll look at the data, make sure that it's safe. And then the next five will receive a slightly higher dose. And then the next five slightly higher. So sometimes they do that um, dose escalating model to 
you know, kind of see, and they can also then look at if there's different side effects that come up at different doses. Uh, and if they find that one dose isn't tolerated super well, then they don't go to the next one, you know, so they can adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a phase one, there also won't be placebos okay. at all. Um, so phase two then focuses more on effectiveness. Uh, side effects are still closely watched. And like I said, safety is something that's looked at the entire time. But phase two's you know, main focus is, is, is this drug or is this intervention, not always a drug, effective? Uh, they're generally less than 100 people. Um, and they usually use the dose and method found to be the safest and most effective in phase one. Uh, usually everyone gets the same dose, but occasionally there will be groups getting different doses or using different methods. Like maybe some, one group will take it by mouth and one group will get it intravenously to kind of see the balance of safety and effectiveness. Uh, again, there's not usually placebos in a phase two. And because there are more patients, uh, in a phase two than a phase one, we might see less common side effects come up that weren't necessarily observed in a phase one trial because, Mm -hmm. you know, say only 1% of patients have a certain side effect. That's one in a hundred. If we had a trial, that would be me. (laughs) There you go. If we had a trial with 15, we might not have had you in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, you know, might be something that doesn't come up until phase two. So again, safety and side effects are still watched very closely. Uh, in a phase three trial, the new st- uh, the new treatment is compared with the standard treatment generally. Okay. So these usually have hundreds of people in them. And this is usually where we have a split into groups. Um, so there could be like a control group and a study group. Those are maybe mm-hmm. some words that people have heard when you hear about clinical trials. Uh, and this is where also placebos can come into play. Um, generally, they won't. I think we'll talk about this a little bit later too. Generally, they're not really used very much in cancer clinical trials because of the. It has to be ethical to use a placebo. <laughs> they're you know you can't just say like you don't get treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but some sometimes what can happen is there could be a group, for example, that receives standard of care plus a placebo, or the other group receives. Um, the new tre- or standard of care plus the new treatment. There can be some some things there, but in a got it. Um, in a phase three, patients are randomly assigned to groups, and this has to be random. The the doctor running it doesn't get to decide nothing like that. It reduces bias. You don't want to have, you know, their doctor's neighbor is in the trial mm-hmm. and they get the new treatment. Right. I think <laughs> we've we've all seen this on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. I was going to say that. And I was like, well, I don't know if anyone knows. Right. So that's like no. totally bad. Hundred percent. <laughs> That's like not allowed at all, um, <laughs> as we know, because she got in trouble on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> um, but so patients are randomly assigned to groups and uh, then they'll be either getting the standard of care or the new treatment. Um, there's also probably some other words that you've heard thrown around like single blind, double blind. These mm-hmm. get, you know, a little bit more into the nitty gritty of it. But essentially a single blind trial is where a patient doesn't know what group they're in, but a doc- okay. the doctor does know or the person running the trial knows. Mm-hmm. And a double blind is where neither of them Nobody know. knows. Okay. Nobody knows. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. of course, there's always somebody on the study that's unblinded because someone has to know, but um, that's where the doctor and the, the researcher back in the, in the office, they're opening the envelopes and saying, okay, this, I got this. Yes. And has to administer the drug. And I've worked on double blind studies too. And you have to have like a whole thing where somebody's covering up what the drug is. And, you know, there's a lot of things because sometimes yeah. a, a new treatment looks different than the standard of care. Or like one mm-hmm. is a larger volume. So there's a lot that goes into it of actually keeping it blinded, but it's really important because a lot of biases can come into play if it's supposed to be a blinded trial and somebody, mm-hmm 
finds out that it, you know, what they're. I could not work on those because my face shows everything. So if I knew and they weren't getting it, I'd be like, I'm so sorry. That's why I like being on the double blind because then you're like, I really don't know. (laughs) Um, And so there's also a phase four trial. This one is um, okay. So after phase three, if it goes well, it'll go to the FDA and be approved. A phase four looks at drugs that have already been approved by the FDA and continues to look at long-term benefits and effects. So these are often a little bit uh, less time-consuming in many ways because it's a little bit more observational and just over time. And these can have thousands of people in it and just looking long-term. Are there any long-term benefits, long-term side effects that we didn't Mm -hmm. see in the initial three studies? Um, A couple of things about them, you know, drugs only move on to the next phase if the phase before it has shown to be safe and effective. So if a phase two, it's not effective or it's not safe, we're not going to move them on just for the heck of it. Um, You know, and the FDA is constantly monitoring things. You know, the patient safety is really paramount in all of this. Uh, And also, I kind of mentioned this before, these aren't phases of clinical trials, but preclinical and lab trials happen before uh, we get into phase one, before we even get into humans. And so those generally start with cell studies, which is there's just all these cell lines of different types of cancers, some from animals, some from humans. Um, We test on those and then they often go into animals and then humans. How long do these phases last normally? A long time. (laughs) I mean, it's, I I can't remember what the average is, but I think it can be 10, 15, 20 years to get through like the entire process. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, there's, and you know, you have to remember there's also tons of paperwork and you're working with groups like the FDA and government groups Mm -hmm. where things are slow. Um, you know, and so I think sometimes like when we talk about like the COVID vaccine and people like things are so expedited and it's like, well, because something that usually takes three months to get a signature, they got it the day they turned it in. And what, what a lot of people don't realize too, is that the, the early parts of these trials have been going on for years. And that's why all of the, the, the people who aren't, so on board they're like well it just appeared overnight well no it actually didn't because it's based on so many other things exactly Um, so science hashtag science (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly no you're right my own my own personal belief not of anyone else get vaccinated um so what are the different kinds of clinical trials out there Yeah. So there's two main ones. Um, The first one is interventional. And that's what I think most people think of when they think of a clinical trial. And so this is a study that includes a medical, surgical, or behavioral intervention. So this is adding something. Could be a drug, uh, could be a medical device, could be a new behavior like exercise therapy, et cetera. But this is adding something new in. Um, Often patients can access treatments that are not yet available through standard of care. And uh, these test the new ways or the new treatments or the new ways of using existing treatments. A type of study that I think less people know about is called observational. And this is generally something where they won't have the patients in the trial change anything, but they'll just be observing um, the patient, their health, whatever metrics they're looking at to observe or to either learn more about their condition, learn more about whatever treatment they're on, um, learn more about something that they're already doing in their life. But basically intervention is adding something new and observational is just watching what you are currently doing. Got it. Now, um, 
we were going to take a break here in a minute, but I have one question before. What kind of consent do people need to give for trials? Like, you know, how much information are they given? And is there some stuff that's held back? Um, So no, there should be nothing that's held back. And this is kind of, I have a lot of information I can give you on this. We might have to go into after break on this one, but um, you know, some people I think, uh, think that informed consent is just getting a signature on a consent form, but that's just a piece of the process. True informed consent means that the patient fully understands the trial and what they're signing. One thing when I was actively getting people's consent when I worked in my previous job um, was that a patient should be able to summarize the trial back to you. They should be able to understand it it that well Mm -hmm. because they need to know what they're signing up for. Right. Um, And so, you know, you asked, is any information held back? It shouldn't be. I mean, you know, if there's a, a blinded trial, of course, we can't tell you what drug you're getting. But there should be nothing held back as far as risks, purpose, the length it's expected to take, uh, any possible benefits, discomforts, procedures, anything like that, who to contact with any questions, concerns. Um, You should be given any and all information. And you should also know it's voluntary and that you can leave the trial at any time. Just because you sign a consent doesn't mean you're in it and can't leave. (laughs) I, well, I love what you said about the the paragraph, like the them being able to repeat the paragraph of information back to you. I think that's that really kind of sums it up. Like you need to know everything and you be able to spout it back. So you've learned the information. So that's really good. Yeah. Um, okay. So we are going to take a short break. Listeners, yeah. remember, you can make a donation on our website or by texting BF radio to 41444 to help breast friends continue on its mission to ensure that women don't go through cancer alone. You can also learn more about Clara Health at clarahealth.com. And um, also, listeners, if you or someone out there needs help with our Breast Friends programs, please go to Patient Programs and our website and check them out. So stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Navigating clinical trials for yourself or a loved one can be incredibly overwhelming. And that's why we built Clara Health. We created the Clara platform in collaboration with advocates to provide an accessible and patient-centered way to connect with clinical trials. Our team is here to support you in making informed and autonomous decisions about your treatment options. If you'd like to learn more, visit clarahealth.com. Navigating clinical trials for yourself or a loved one can be incredibly overwhelming. And that's why we built Clara Health. We created the Clara platform in collaboration with advocates to provide an accessible and patient-centered way to connect with clinical trials. Our team is here to support you in making informed and autonomous decisions about your treatment options. If you'd like to learn more, visit clarahealth.com. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck and my guest is Rachel Pension Lind. She's the senior site manager, oh, sorry, senior manager of site operations at Clara Health. And we've been talking about clinical trials. So, um, so much good information so far, Rachel. Thank you. Um, but let's get into uh, trials with breast cancer. I'm sure there are, you know, there, how many trials actually are going on at any given time usually? thousands tens of thousands i couldn't even tell you i mean there's trials that for every indication out there every disease process everything i mean so many so you know what about so i'm sure there are specific ones for breast cancer but also um are there separate trials for metastatic breast cancer because it's such an important thing right now more and more women are being diagnosed metastatic and it's just the amount of funding that goes into metastatic is so disgusting it's just the the numbers are rising and it's like eight percent of the funding so i'm i'm hoping there are a lot of clinical trials out there for that there are definitely clinical trials for metastatic breast cancer out there um off the top of my head i don't know any of them just to spout off but there's definitely clinical trials for metastatic breast cancer there's clinical trials for, I would say every phase, you know, there's ones that are looking at how we can have better early detection, you know, in blood tests. And then there's ones in every single phase, every single type of breast cancer, including metastatic. But I do agree that the funding for it is abysmal. Yeah. I, I don't know any, I mean, there's a lot of awful words to describe it, but I, I have lost um, in our organization, so many young women this year to metastatic cancer, and it just breaks my heart. So, Ugh. anything we can do to to really help that going forward, especially for triple negative, which has just been awful this year. Um, yeah. But let's go back to the the placebo question. So, say someone is in, enrolled in a, a trial, clinical trial for breast cancer. How, like you talk about re- receiving the placebo versus the new type of care and standard of care and all that. How does that work? Because you really, you still want to help people. <laughs> yes. So placebos are rarely used in cancer treatment clinical okay. trials because like you said, you want to help people. You can't just say, take this placebo, which is often looked at as like a sugar pill. It's, it's, you know, not a medication. Um, you, there's a couple cases where a placebo could be used in a cancer clinical trial. Uh, Generally, what it is, is like if a patient is receiving, you know, there's two groups. So like in a phase three trial, which I mentioned before, if there's two groups, one group is receiving the standard of care. So they're still receiving treatment and they're receiving the treatment they would receive, even if they're not in a clinical trial, plus a placebo. And then another group is receiving the standard of care plus a new treatment. And so that could compare, like, is the new treatment in addition to the standard of care better Mm -hmm. than, um, 
just the standard of care and placebo, but you can't use a placebo in a clinical trial if it's not ethical. You can't just say like, let's see what happens if we give them nothing because we know that it won't be good. Um, You know, like that's not ethically appropriate. And, you know, I think sometimes placebo has been uh, used, like people just think clinical trial, oh, placebo. And that's not necessarily the case. And like I said, in, in cancer clinical trials, it's actually fairly rare to use a placebo because of because of the ethical piece of it. Um, and you know, good to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And you know, a placebo would not be used if there's a highly effective or potentially curative therapy available to patients. Um, but again, like the way that it would be used the most in cancer clinical trials is, uh, if you're comparing it as like an addition to a standard of care versus a new treatment. So you're still receiving the care that you would receive outside of a clinical trial. Um, but you might just be getting something in addition to that, if that makes sense. 100%. Now, what are the potential costs associated to a patient for enrolling in a clinical trial? Because all of this costs money. And do do the patients have to pay? Oftentimes, no. So usually clinical trials will be entirely covered by uh, the person running it or the group running it. Sometimes or oftentimes um, things that are standard of care, like blood tests and things that you would receive, even if you weren't in the trial, will still be covered by insurance. Of course, we run into issues if people don't have insurance and, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a kind of you can get into like very specific case scenarios, which we won't do here. But um, if they're, if you're receiving something in a clinical trial that isn't standard of care, that's usually entirely free to you and it should be covered by the trial. There are some exceptions and that's trial specific, but all of that would be disclosed to you before, like when you're doing the informed consent process. So you should know if there would be any costs associated um, with any of the trials that you'd be doing or any of the treatment you'd be getting. Another thing is there could potentially be extra visits if you're in a clinical trial. So mm-hmm. if first example, you live far away, you know, you have to travel parking. That's, those are all questions too. Some trials will cover, uh, travel costs for you. Some co- will cover food, you know, parking, those sorts of things. And some don't. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that would be disclosed to you when, during the informed consent process before you even sign the consent form. Um, but those ones can be a little bit study specific, whether or not they'll cover kind of the travel costs. Sure. Now, if someone is interested in participating in a clinical trial at no matter what stage they're in and their cancer treatment, and their oncologist doesn't mention it, how do you know if a trial is right for you or how do you find something? Yeah. So, you know, if your oncologist doesn't mention it, you can always bring it up to them. Say, you know, do you know of any trials that are going on? Clara Health also has a great free resource. So clinical trials got clinicaltrials.gov is the place okay. that people have always gone. That's not Clara Health. That's just sort of, that's mm-hmm. where all the clinical trials that are going on are ever are listed. That's like at, all, at any time, but it's a really clunky website and it's very difficult to navigate. Even if you Which are- Which most of the government websites are. <laughs> right. Even if you are computer savvy, it's you know difficult to navigate. And then if you're not, then I don't even know how anyone would do it. Um, and so that's sort of one of the things that Clara Health is trying to you know make clinical trials more accessible. Mm-hmm. So we do have a free resource that you can go on and nice. talk to people from our team and they can help find clinical trials. If it's not a trial that we're specifically working on, you know, we can't um, do any of the screening and stuff, but we can always help direct you to sure. the contact they have listed. So those are ways that you could find them. You can always look to like at your, you know, oncology center, a local hospital, they generally have, you know, like OHSU is our local one. You can look up OHSU clinical trials and they have a page that has all of them listed that they have going on. So those are 
couple options. Nice. Now for me as a survivor who would want to help, how, how do they take, how would I be a part of a clinical trial to help future patients? Yeah. So there could be a lot of different ways. So I know you mentioned that you're on a medication and have side effects that are very unpleasant. Sounds like, you know, there could be observational studies for those. So those would be like looking at, um, you know, just how you're tolerating that medication side effects. Um, you know, I'm, don't know if there's actually one going on for that, but that's just like an option of things. Um, there are also lots of trials for survivors looking at either observational or interventional things. I've heard of ones, you know, for interventional, for example, having behavioral changes, like potentially there's been, um, I've seen mindfulness ones. So things like meditation, mm-hmm. therapy, exercise, yoga. Um, and so there also could be, uh, you know, some other observational ones, but there's definitely, I think it can be a common misconception that people think that clinical trials are only for people that are getting treatment for a disease actively or actively have something that's being treated. But um, clinical trials and survivors are really useful as well, because that's, you know, it's important to not just be like, your treatment's done. We're not looking at anything anymore. Um, mm-hmm. We want to keep looking at people. Another thing to add to survivorship because it is it's really challenging. Um, now, we all know that cancer does not just happen to the patient. It happens to families and caregivers. How can caregivers give the support to their family members or friends who, who are going through a trial? Yeah. So one thing that I didn't mention when we were talking about informed consent, too, is that a a caretaker, family member, friend, whoever can be with you. And I, you know, I would recommend that they are with you when they talk about it. So they could always, you know, be there with you to hear about the trial. They could help ask some questions that might not come up for you. Um, You know, they can always be there for that. They could help search for trials for you. There are also trials with caretakers, you know, either caretakers and patients together. Uh, There's, I know some trials that uh, or at the institution that I used to work at that have caretaker and patient exercise classes, for example. Mm-hmm. And then there's also ones that are just caretaker too. that. And those can be um, observational or intervention too. So I've seen observational ones of just kind of, you know, tracking how they're doing potentially like mental health through the process right. the, the, on the mental health of taking care of the mental health of caretakers is so important. And it's something that's really not done enough because you know, when, when I went through it, it was interesting. I had a show last summer with my husband and my sister um, about my, my main caretakers and how they handled my cancer treatments. And it was really interesting. They completely did it in different ways. My husband, former military, very cut and dry. This is the way it is, is, was like, okay, we're going to do this. This is what's happening. I'm going to blah, 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 you know, step, step, step. And my sister literally lived in a world of denial. She's like, you're fine. You're good. We're getting through this. Um, but both of them helped me. But I know from talking to them, my my second diagnosis was five years ago this week, actually, Um five years. Um, Congrats. But it was really interesting talking to them later on um, at this point to find out how it affected them and how they process. Like my sister actually spent time talking a lot of time talking to her therapist about it because she wouldn't, she was always super positive with me, but then the reality, she went back to her therapist and was like, this is awful. Like she's my person. How do I, you know, how do I get through this? Whereas my husband, he was so used to processing and compartmentalizing that he just powered through. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. I mean, funny is probably not the right word, but you know, seeing how people Uh deal with it differently, but 
there's a lack of support, I think, yes. for caretakers along the process. And we just kind of throw them in and say, figure it out. Right. And so your husband and sister clearly figured it out in their own way, but that doesn't mean that it was right, that they didn't have more support throughout the process. And it's, I mean, it's fantastic that your sister had a therapist to at least like talk to about it. But if we had more resources, like, you know, in the oncologist's office, like that should be something that's like, okay, you've been diagnosed and here's how we're going to support you, but also here's how we're going to support your caregiver. And so clinical trials, you know, are a great way to start to, um, you know, talk about the different things that we can do and figure out what is actually beneficial. Sure. And I imagine that is the main point of doing the clinical trials is helping future patients. I mean, y- yes, it can help us with our treatments going forward, but with the time frames that it takes, like if it, if it can take years, like I have five more years on my medication because I'm on the 10 year plan because I've had it twice, same type, blah, blah, blah. But so for me, it's not really going to help, but for others out there, for the younger women and, you know, people are going to get diagnosed in the future. I imagine that's why we want to do these things. So both. Yeah. You know, yes. Like the definitely wanting to help future people that have di- the same diagnosis as you. Um, that's definitely a big reason. And I think too, like some people think that clinical trials won't help them and will only help people in the future. And that's not necessarily true, you know, especially with, you know, Meta- observ- metastatic patients too, probably. I, yeah, that if they find a, another kind of treatment that they're on, that's really going to help prolong their life and their quality of life. That is a huge bonus. Yeah. And, you know, things like observational studies, obviously those things are probably more to help people down the line because they're not actually having interventions, but for trials where people are trying new medications, new devices, new behavioral interventions, those can help people during the trial. And and that can also give, you know, the people that are in the trial access to medications or things like that, that wouldn't be normally accessible because they're not FDA approved yet. So it can help you while you're doing it, and then also can help people down the line as well. Totally makes sense. Now, we talked a little bit about this and your, um, can you actually give the the landing site for your free resource of the clinical trials at Clara? Um, yeah. So if someone wanted to get started on that, um, because yeah, yes, you can go to go to clarahealth.com and search, but um, are, and the clinicaltrials.gov are those the two? Well, obviously, Clara, yes, but other than clinicaltrials.gov, which is hard to navigate, how how do you? I mean, do you just Google that shit? Sorry, that's my, <laughs> that's our phrase in my house. GTS. That's funny. I love that. So with the Clara Health one, you can Google Clara Health or go to clarahealth.com, and in the top right corner it says find a study, and so that's just what you'd click on. There mm-hmm. is also a breast cancer specific. Uh, finder for trials and that's breastcancertrials.org. I haven't played a lot on that one, so I don't know Mm -hmm. how accessible it is, but my understanding is that's kind of specifically the one that patient advocacy groups and patients with breast cancer use just because then you don't have to look through trials that aren't for your type of cancer or your, you know, or even things that aren't even cancer. (laughs) Got it. Totally makes sense. Um, Now you, how long have you been working in the the with the patients in the clinical trials. I know you kind of started out in the lab. It, over that time, what, do you work with patients or like what is your like any do you have any specific experiences that you can really talk about in terms of how it has you know, affected patients or help people? Yeah. So I'm not actively working with patients right now. I kind of peripherally work with them, but have before. Um, you know, it really is meaningful when you see that a patient feels like they've 
been given access to something or had a really good time in a clinical trial, something that stands out to me, and this isn't actually um, related to the cancer clinical trials that I worked on, but is related to just sort of like patient centricity around trials is that I worked in the anesthesia department for a little bit and worked closely with an anesthesiologist who uh, was specifically trained in obstetric anesthesia. And so we had some trials on labor and delivery and I worked on some that we were in C-sections and our, the thing that we did didn't happen until after the baby was out and after the placenta was out. So we kind of just like stood around for a while and I would always offer to take pictures with Mm -hmm. the parents, either phone or camera. And like, they would always be like so happy, like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Because everyone else in the room has a job. Like they're giving you your anesthesia or they're getting the baby out. Like they're not like, give me your phone. Let me take a picture. But I was just kind of a warm body in the way. (laughs) And so I'd be like, give me your camera. Let me take pictures. And they were always so, so happy happy. And like, Mm -hmm. it was always fun for me because it's, you know, it's exciting to see people become parents. It's a happy time. Um, and it was just like such a fun thing and reminded me sort of, of like, these are people like, you know, it's just a good reminder of like, these are people in your trial and like the patient centricity and what can I do for them? Like, I didn't have to take pictures for them, you know, but why not? Like, and how can we make it a better experience for them and remind ourselves that they are people and they're patients and, you know, they're important. We have to keep, keep that in the front of our minds, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Side note, always love my anesthesiologist, my best friends. <laughs> um, I had, uh, yeah, I, one time I told an anesthesiologist, thank you for the best nap of my life over and over and over after I came out of anesthesia. I don't remember it. I was just told that. <laughs> Well, Rachel, we do need to take another quick break. Um, I want to remind listeners out there, if you would like to be a guest or send me your story of what inspired you, what helped you through your cancer or how your life has changed for the better, please email me at michellebeck at breastfriends.org. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Navigating clinical trials for yourself or a loved one can be incredibly overwhelming. And that's why we built Clara Health. We created the Clara platform in collaboration with advocates to provide an accessible and patient-centered way to connect with clinical trials. Our team is here to support you in making informed and autonomous decisions about your treatment options. If you'd like to learn more, visit clarahealth.com. Navigating clinical trials for yourself or a loved one can be incredibly overwhelming. And that's why we built Clara Health. We created the Clara platform in collaboration with advocates to provide an accessible and patient-centered way to connect with clinical trials. Our team is here to support you in making informed and autonomous decisions about your treatment options. If you'd like to learn more, visit clarahealth.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. 
you may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck, and my guest is Rachel Pension Lind, Senior Manager of Site Operations at Clara Health, who really make clinical trials easy for those of you out there. So if you're interested, please check out their website. Um, we're talking about why it matters to breast cancer patients and survivors and what, what we can do to help with and all the ins and outs. Um, what are, Rachel, what are some of the common assumptions that you think people make about trials that are true or not true? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think one is that once you agree to participate in a trial that you can't change your mind. That's not true. Uh, Informed consent is an ongoing process and it means that you can change your mind at any time for any reason. You can say like, hey, you know what? This was working for me and it's not anymore and that's okay. Um, There should be no coercion to stay in a study if you bring it up. It's really helpful if you are in a trial and decide to leave to let them know and also to maybe give them a little bit of insight why just because say they have like Mm -hmm. 10 people who leave and it's all because the time commitment's too much and no one tells them, then they can't make any changes. But, you know, there should not be any like, are you sure? Why? You know, like no coercion. Um, You know, again, also I mentioned this before, like I'm nervous I'll receive a placebo. That is sometimes true and sometimes not. But I think Mm -hmm. we talked about that, like you wouldn't receive a placebo and when there's a very good treatment available, you know, that's not something Mm -hmm. you can only receive a placebo when it's ethical. (laughs) Now, are there ever therapists or counselors involved in the process that the patients can talk to about their fears or anxiety about the trial or what they're going through? That's a good question. So in my experience, there hasn't been like therapists or counselors on the kind of staff of the clinical trial. That would be Mm -hmm. something that I would love to see happen more. I'm a huge proponent for that because so many people don't have others to talk to. And especially if they're going through something like this, I'm a huge proponent of therapy and getting out those emotions. And a lot of times families and caregivers, while they might be supportive, they don't understand exactly what is going on, Um, which is why we're huge advocates of finding, if it's not a therapist or a counselor, find your tribe, find your group who you can talk to, Um, which leads me to another question. Um, Do patients in the trials, can they connect with other patients or are they usually kept separate? That's a good question too. You know, oftentimes they're not actively placed together, but if it's something that you would be interested in, it's a possibility. I think also for trials, like for example, for breast cancer, or other types of cancers, that would be something that would potentially be more common. And that would definitely be something that you could ask either the study staff, the principal investigator. So like the doctor running the trial or just another member of the study staff, like, Hey, you know, could I be in contact with other people from the trial? You could also, you know, offer up like, you know, can you let people know that I want to be in contact? They would have to, you know, kind of be the in-between at first to make sure and not just like, here's everyone's information. Right. Um, But that would definitely be something. I think that could be helpful for support as well. And, you know, I'm a huge proponent for therapy for everybody, but uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think sometimes do too. If you were at like a large institution, you might be able to request you speak to like a social worker as well. But that would be one of the things I would love to see is like, a therapist on staff for a clinical yeah. trial to be able to talk to patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I know in the it, two years into a pandemic, we're really in short supply on therapists, but um, yeah, some, something to look forward to because the pandemic will end. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, um, so what do you wish more people knew about clinical trials? Like how, because I think the knowledge is power, you know, thank you schoolhouse rock, but um, how, 
how do you get the word out there and to really clear up any misconceptions or, you know, what, what do you want to tell more people? Yeah. Um, I want to tell people that they're not just a last resort. I think clinical trials are often looked at as like, I've tried everything and I'm going to a clinical trial. It's a last resort. That's not always the case. They can be really, really early on. And, you know, like we've talked about all the different kinds of trials. Also that uh, you as a patient have power in the clinical trial. I think that, uh, you know, in the medical field in general, there can be a power imbalance where the patient feels like they can't speak up. I'm sure you know that. Yes. And I'm sure most of the listeners here to uh, listeners here know that as well. Um, and especially in clinical trials, I think people can feel like, I feel like a guinea pig. Like, you know, I feel like I can't speak up, but that's not the case. Like you have power in the clinical trial. A clinical trial doesn't happen without patients. Um, and, you know, I want people to feel empowered to speak up if they feel like there's something that's funky and, you know, ask questions. Like you should feel empowered to know that you don't need to just do what you're told without speaking up and asking about it. Like, I think that that's one thing I really want patients to realize like how much power they have and to take that back and like feel empowered. I just keep saying power empowered, but, <laughs> it, no, but it's, it's so true. That's one thing we talk about all the time is being your own advocate because there, there is something that's called the good patient syndrome. So we go into the office and we're with our, our medical team and our oncologists. And there's that part of the brain that's like, okay, my doctor knows what's going on. They've, they've studied this. They've been a doctor for so long and they're going to ask me these questions. And I'm gonna be like, okay, yes, I will. I will do whatever you say. And yes, we should trust them and believe in them. But if something is, if seems odd to you, ask questions, get second opinions and, just because they are your oncologist or some someone on your medical team does not mean that what they're talking about is right for you. And, and especially human. they, they <laughs> are human. And especially with, Hey, that's the beauty of live, <laughs> live podcasting. And, and, you know, woo, like my hands <laughs> any day, I expect my screen to fall over my dogs to come in and jump on me and my son to come in. Um, so, you know, <laughs> those are the good times. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, but, they're just humans too, right? Like, I mean, yeah. we should trust physicians and scientists and stuff, but you also need to feel like you're being listened to and you're being heard and not mm-hmm. everyone's right for everybody. Like maybe that doctor just, it doesn't mean they're bad at their job or they might, might not be a good fit. And yes. that's the same. I imagine with clinical trials, you can go in, you can learn about it. And at, as you said, at any point in the process, you can be like, eh, this is no longer for me. And, you know, hopefully you give them the knowledge of why it doesn't work for you. And then you can move on. Yes. Because- and I remember so many patients who would tell me, oh, I'm so sorry. This just doesn't feel right for me to do right now. I'm like, that's fine. Don't apologize. Like, th- th- thanks yeah. for letting me know. <laughs> I mean, really, we have so much going on, whether it's in treatment, post-treatment, um, doing a clinical trial. And yes, if you're in, if you're in active treatment and you're really trying to find something that will help help you going forward great, but that still might not be right for you. It might, the side effects might be too much or the emotions of it. And, you know, even post-treatment, it's like you said, you're not locked in. This is not prison. You, you know, this is, this is a choice and you're doing it to help yourself or others, but you don't have to. So being your own advocate and really saying, I, I am important here, you know, listen to me, answer my questions so I can make the right decision. Yeah. And I think some people feel too, that like, you know, the notion of this clinical trials to help other people down the line, some people feel like, well, then I should do it. Cause I should want to help people that come after me. And 
that's it's great if you want to it's, and you feel like great you, but you don't but have to you it's mm-hmm. there should, there's no should in it like if it feels right for you great and if it doesn't that's okay <laughs> you have yeah. to be kind of all in on it and like you're not all in but you have to feel right about it I it's funny I've, I've definitely heard from um, many you know self-help people that should should be taken out of our vocabulary because mm-hmm. it's like oh like you know it it's you know, if you have to, if you should do something, it's like, oh, <laughs> then you, you don't know. want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So what do you, what do you hope to see in the future? What sort of shifts or advancements in clinical trials like are foremost in your mind that you would like to see? Yeah. I mean, you know, we mentioned things like the therapist, like I, there's just so much like patient centricity that I would love to see. Um, clinical trials have been around for a long time and, you know, this is similar in medicine, but sometimes people are resistant to change, you know? Mm -hmm. And so things like COVID kind of sped up, um, you know, for all the bad things that happened with it, they did make things happen a little faster in some ways, like telehealth, you know, a lot of people were really, really, really resistant to telehealth and in clinical trials too. And so I hope that that's something that becomes more available when you just have a visit that you don't have to have any tests done or, you know, that can be done via telehealth. It's mm-hmm. so much easier for a lot of patients, particularly if someone's rural has to travel yes. a long way, like that would be great. Or being able to do home health or allow patients to see a physician or somebody closer to them. Um, you know, making it more accessible for t- patients, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of the appointments are nine to five. So we don't get patients that have like nine to five jobs without flexibility, which tends to be patients that are in lower socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Uh, that skews results. You know, if yes. we're only having wealthy people in trials, like, or people that have flexible jobs, like that does skew results. Um, you know, making it standard to cover things like transportation for patients. I mentioned some trials will cover transportation, some won't. Again, making it standard to do that will allow more people to be in trials. You know, if somebody can't afford an Uber to the hospital and they can't be in the trial, like that's, in my opinion, a really terrible reason to not allow someone in a trial. But that's what happens, you know, and it's a problem from above. Like there's, there's a lack of funding for a lot of these things, but we just need to make it more commonplace. We need to make trials way more accessible. We need to build trust in communities of color that have so often felt or have been tested on by the medical field. And for good reason, don't want to involve themselves in clinical trials because they don't have trust. You know, there needs to be, there's a lot of, I think, things are happening, but sometimes I feel like there's some lip service of like, we want to diversify your trials and make them more accessible. And then when you say like, okay, great, here's tangible things you can do. It's like, Ooh, maybe not that that's like a lot of work. And, you know, of course money is a thing and like, it can be hard to get the funding, but these are things that I like, I really want to see and become more accessible. And like just the patient centricity piece of it, like putting the Mm -hmm. patients at the front of our mind and like, what can we do that's best for the patients. How can we make this the best possible experience for them? Can we get a therapist to talk to them about mm-hmm. it? You know, cause maybe they don't have somebody to talk about it with at home or like, they don't want to burden somebody, you know, whatever. Like we just need to make these like really commonplace, I think. Now, where does the most of the funding come from? Are these big pharma companies that are sponsoring these trials? So there's different types of trials, but pharma companies are sponsoring a lot of them. There's also a lot of government Um, funding. Uh, There's kind of two main types of trials. One is called a um, investigator initiated trial. So that's if like a 
physician, for example, has an idea for a trial, they go and find funding for it. And usually it's just at one hospital, like their hospital and they're running Mm -hmm. it. Or there's like bigger sponsor trial, which is where like a pharma company or something has a drug or whatever. And they have many, many different hospitals running them. But so generally money comes from pharma companies, um, government. And then sometimes there's also like patient advocacy or like specific disease groups that have some types of funding for trials, but there's always a lack of funding, which is also why, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a big problem. It's like, we can't pay for transportation if we're barely making ends meet on paying the staff, but like, that's a problem. We need to normalize having funding for all this extra stuff. Cause I don't think it's extra. I think it should be standard. <laughs> right. Because if patient is going through treatment, they're already putting out so many, so much out of, out of pocket costs. And even, even like for, for me, like, my husband was working. I was a stay-at-home mom, but we had a $5,000 deductible. No one has $5,000 extra just sitting around that you have to pay your medical bills for. And then if you're expected to pay for you know, part of a clinical trial, it's going to be above and beyond. And we're in you know, a middle-class white family who has resources. So it's kind of crazy out there. Yep. Um, but so yes, more funding, more funding. Um, so we have one minute left. How can listeners find out more Again, we've, we've covered this, but please iterate again how to find Clara Health in clinical trials. Yeah, so clarahealth.com, um, up in the top right corner, it'll say find a study. That's one, that's one place you can go. And there's always a chat box there that you can talk to a real person that can help you find trials. It's all free. Basically, it's about making trials more accessible. Like we really want people to have access to trials. This company started because one of our founders was like, saw a poster for, a, I believe it was a breast cancer clinical trial hanging up okay. somewhere. And she was like, I cannot believe this is how people are finding trials. This is obscene. Like, you know, just you lucky by luck, you saw the poster. Like we need to make it easier for people to find trials. Um, you know, I mentioned breastcancertrials.org is another website that's specific for breast cancer. If you want to do a little bit more of your own searching, you know, talk to your doctors, talk to your oncologists. A lot of times they do know, mm-hmm. even if they're not necessarily bringing it up, they often are privy to trials. Um, and, you know, you can always look on the website of your local hospital as well. Again, you have to do a little more digging yourself, but those are all uh, different ways of looking. Perfect. Rachel, so much good information today about clinical trials and Clara Health. And reminder, patients, be your own advocate. So again, listeners, thank you so much for being here today. If you or a loved one need our services, please visit breastfriends.org. You can make a donation on our website or by texting BF Radio to 41444 to help ensure that women do not go through cancer alone. You can find our show on many platforms on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel or search Breast Friends wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now we're going to be on YouTube. So you can search us there too. Uh, If you want to nominate yourself to be my guest or submit your warrior story, I'm at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. We'll be back next week. And until then, remember, we rise by lifting each other. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Please join Michelle Beck again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We rise by lifting each other.